Remember, at least from the Islamic perspective, it's the same God we're talking about. Right. Just different, uh, different channels of the divine television. Well, we often have more in common than people realize. We have our differences, but I certainly, like I said, I mentioned to you, I look for God working in my clients because that helps me to see the spark of the divine outside of the context of my right. faith practice. Sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I I say this all the time, Michael, like your fun, your primary relationship is the divine relationship. And if you start to see all other relationships in context of that, that's my understanding theologically, existentially of how we're all trying to function, you know, when we take that mm. path seriously, because if human beings are social creatures or creatures of bonding, it's all about how we relate to everything, how we relate to money to cars, to myself, my own subjective experience, how I relate to nature, animals, others. And certainly if my the divine reality is not centralized, let's say, in my mm. conscientiousness, my awareness, my you know, self-reflection, basically that's the standard, right? Of how because it's it's very hard to know there is no like absolute truth with a capital T that any particular person or group possesses. I see it more as there's the one and then there's the infinite many that make up the one. And within that many, you have many lowercase t's with truth. And that's why we're all in this together. You know, that's why, Michael, you're here and you're giving us insight and wisdom and we're sharing because it's it's not about like, well, I have it all and you basically are not me or in my group, so you don't have anything to offer. And I think that's a very sad um, psychological state that that some people of uh, you know not even just faith but any you know dogmatic ideology ha tend to have that kind of exclusivist mentality. It's like if you don't believe what I believe, then there's nothing of value there. And sometimes that's the case with people of faith. Like oh, if it's not some Islamic or some priest, then what does he have to offer me? Really, it's like that's everything is an expression of God if you pay attention, right? And making meaning is an individual um, uh, process, but how else is God revealing and uh, um, unraveling his will and showing his manifestation? It's through creation, right? And that includes every human being and every plant and so on. Does that resonate? What, yeah, what's interesting to me about what you said, especially in regard to my work with clients that are Muslim men, is that I will try to often ask, how does this idea, let's say the idea about a family dynamic or the way the inner critic is impacting them, how does this relate to your understanding of God according to your faith? And so what I mean by that example is that I accompany the client as they seek truth. So we're seeking truth together. Now, my understanding and my belief of what is capital T truth, because I do believe in objective reality, I think that even if me and a client disagree on what is truth, we both often have one, one really important thing in common, that we believe there is such thing as truth. So you, you can seek that together. And I think that is what's more powerful than, let's say, a more relativistic approach to spirituality or to counseling, where it's anything goes, whatever feels good to you, because that approach, that relativism, doesn't really serve people very well who are trying to overcome unwanted same-sex attraction. Because otherwise, a lot of these clients of mine, they would just have gone off and 
become gay identified. And I don't think that would have led them to peace or happiness. But I think they made a wise decision by saying, okay, that is this belief in God that I have. And there's a belief in objective truth. And let me seek truth in the context of my conscience and how God has revealed himself to me. Right. No, that's a very good point. And I would definitely agree with that. I mean, you need some kind of a ground for reality and a premise or else what everything is just floating around with no no anchoring <laughs> right you, you know so um but yeah that's uh could be a whole other podcast but yeah. one of the one of the things that um you know as someone who studies psychology somebody who is uh involved in a theological tradition um there is a, a powerful concept called scrupulosity in uh, mm. in psychology and my understanding of this is it's a type of obsessive um compulsive uh situation or 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 state but it is paired with religious matters is that the correct way to understand it and if not can you maybe define it for us i think that's a great way to start and Ultimately, scrupulosity as a form of OCD, obsessive and compulsive disorder, shows up in a lot of clients' lives that I work with around their same-sex sexuality issues. So any, anybody that struggles with actual diagnosable obsessive compulsive disorder really should seek professional therapy or specific therapy combined with religious guidance because this is a condition that has some biological components that often benefit from medication intervention, as well as there's a, a list of very good evidence-based treatments, which include forms of cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness-based exposures with response prevention. So before I get into the, the details, I just wanna highlight the importance of people seeking proper treatment for what would be diagnosable scrupulosity. Beyond that, there's also just general tendencies towards scrupulousness. And scrupulosity came from this idea of having a small, it's from this Latin phrase, scrupulum, I believe, which means small, sharp stone. Mm. And I might be mispronouncing the original Latin here, but it's the idea of having this small, tiny little stone in your shoe when you're walking. Interesting. And <laughs> you, you just feel this constant little pain. It's an exaggerated conscience, a conscience that has been misformed and in a short version of it, misses the forest for the trees. So instead of looking at the whole of one's spiritual life, there is an exaggerated fixation on the feeling that something just isn't right and it's never going to be right. And so the person compulsively reviews their day, punishes the self, avoids certain circumstances or situations that might trigger that fear. And this is not at the service of their religious development in the long term. So whether it is just some tendencies towards scrupulosity or full-on obsessive compulsive disorder, addressing it in the proper context and identifying it is really important. That's just the first way I'd start to explain it. Mm -hmm. So how would so one one example I I can think of is you know Muslims pray five times a day or at least that's the goal. And, um, like for instance, I had a mother call me once and say, you know, my son, he, when he has to wash, like you do the, um, the purification ritual before prayer, uh, he would spend like two hours doing just that part, which typically takes a minute or two. Then when he performs the prayer, he would do it 
10 or 20 times because he had to make sure it was perfect. So isn't the false construct of perfectionism often linked with OCD states? Absolutely. And what you're describing is somebody who likely had aspects of contamination, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is associated with the washing rituals, and also perfectionism or scrupulosity OCD, which is associated with his repetition of these prayers way more than is reasonable. Now, what you're describing is somebody who probably has diagnosable OCD. That would be somebody who even might benefit from medication intervention. But there are people even with lesser versions of that where in short order, I have many Muslim clients describe a version of they fixate on the letter of the law and miss the spirit of the law. And that in small doses might not be a diagnosable psychological condition, but it's it's not facilitating this intimacy with the divine because it focuses on the wrong thing. What's the purpose of why I'm doing this? And, and this is for clients with SSA, Kareem. One great example is they might slip up with pornography or masturbation, for instance. And instead of going to prayer afterward, they avoid prayer because there's compulsive self-punishment. I'm not good enough. I'm bad. I can't do this. That punishment kind of gives them the sense of security over their fear of abandonment from God, as opposed to the very thing they need the most in that case, which is to go to God. And so when they avoid, for instance, prayer after making a mistake, that's a good little indicator. Oh, there's a little scrupulosity or some shame going on here, as opposed to a genuine conscience. Because conscience leads us to right action. Neurotic guilt leads us to avoidance. So if your conscience is is good and well-formed in your faith tradition, and you make a mistake, your guilt will lead you towards making it right, to repentance, towards religious action, towards atonement. Reaction formation sometimes as another defense. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, but ultimately, if you think what you're doing after you sin is making it better, in air quotes, by avoiding God altogether, that's a good little red flag that maybe you're missing a little piece here that could be some scrupulosity or some shame as opposed to a genuine conscience that would lead you towards getting closer again with God after a mistake. What are your thoughts? I I don't know if that fits with your understanding of the Muslim community. I was going to say I, I love that because it's um, it's something I've said time and time again, like people who act out with porn, they're like, I didn't pray because I felt too guilty and I'm not worthy. And it's like it's exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. Just like when you have a deep need for intimacy, it seems like alienation and synthetic fulfillment of pleasure, whether it's porn or this or that, that's not ever going to give you what you're looking for. Right. I always I say it's like uh, eating, you know, you're hungry and you eat fast food. It does the job. But in the long term, it's actually really not good for you or giving you any real energy or yeah. fulfillment. Right. No nourishment. Yeah. Donuts um, for dinner. So yeah. it's like, yeah, it's not, you know, it does the job, so to speak, on a surface level. But it's a functional thing. Right. And so, of course, um, I, I, you know, this concept of um, when I feel ashamed or guilty or inadequate, in front of my Lord, the ego has some rationalization for, well, I guess that means I should avoid my Lord or I should punish myself more or judge myself more when in fact, you know, we all know that that is 
the department of the divine, right? Actual judgment or, I mean, the divine knows what you whisper to yourself, your intentions, what's in your heart, what you conceal and what you reveal. So there's no, you can't play games with God, right? You can't just be like, oh, I'm going to pretend that I'm, I'm just not feeling good and I'm not going to, it's like God is listening to those very, that very inner dialogue that you're using to minimize or rationalize the proper thing to do in this moment, right? So this is what I heard is, some, is part of this uh, obsessiveness around religious matters or that scrupulosity. In other words, we, sometimes we want to appear like perfected in our practice and then that becomes the all or nothing trap, right? I'm either a perfect Catholic or I'm just not going to be a Catholic at all. I either go to church every Sunday or I'm not going at all. It's like, why? You know, things take time. There's gradualism. There's moderation. Um, you know, in the, in Islam, it says, you know, uh, God loves a good deed done consistently. A small good deed done consistently. It's better than like going all out for a day and then you just punch out for several years, right? Because it's uh, it's like a type of burnout or spiritual depletion almost, right? So I think that those things, um, are those some of the ways that you've uh, been able to support people with scrupulosity? I mean, cognitive restructuring and behavioral therapy, I'm sure. Um, perhaps a proper realignment with one's emotions and identifying what's really happening. And of course, trying to begin replacing strategies or reactions to their pain um, with conscious responses to their pain. What yeah, you... and I think for the severity of the obsessive tendencies or scrupulosity, you have different levels of intervention. And as you're describing, for some people on the lower end, it might just be cognitive restructuring, looking at the situation differently. And then they can start to see, oh, when I avoid prayer, I'm engaging in a form of perfectionism that's missing the point of prayer. Or if it's more serious, we can, like you said, do behavioral interventions and therapy that will more directly address the obsessive compulsive cycle. And one other thing about OCD that's really important if you have Muslim community listening to your podcast, we get a lot of people who come to our clinic who have very little actual same-sex erotic arousal, but they have high levels of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, that fixates on fear around their sexual identity. <clears throat> and it especially happens when men who have don't have predominant same-sex attraction, but have had either a molestation experience or an experimentation experience in adolescence, and they believe oh, this experience I had defines me. This means I'm gay. This means I'm same-sex attracted. And they often have other areas of obsessive compulsive issues as well, such as washing or checking. And if you're interested in learning more, you can visit our, our clinic and reach out anytime. But ultimately, I'm telling this to people who are listening to you, because if you're listening and you have fear about being gay more than actual same-sex erotic arousal, it's a good indicator that there might be some obsessiveness and you should get evaluated for obsessive compulsive disorder. And we can treat people and help them get treatment for that obsessive compulsive tendency. Mm -hmm. And would you say that OCD um, disorders or states are rooted in traumatic 
experiences that made the person feel a lot of fear, helplessness, yeah. hurt? I mean, is because my understanding is like I'm OCD because it gives me a false sense of control, predictability, and power over myself and environment, yeah. perhaps, right? There's a spectrum of etiology of development of this issue, and some people it happens very early, so it's hard to say the balance of nature versus nurture and how that was triggered, that disorder became manifest. But for especially, I see a lot of clients who have a single traumatic incident that exacerbates their OCD, such as failure to perform sexually with a woman. They might try to enact sexually with a woman, they have erectile dysfunction, and boom, an already obsessive person mixes that experience with their predisposition towards obsessive tendencies, and now the fixation is on, Kareem. It's like every day they're reviewing that experience, they're compulsively reviewing every aspect of replaying and I didn't perform. I couldn't get an erection. I couldn't do this thing I thought I should be able to do as a man. What is she going to think of me? What is she going to think of me? What does this say about me as a Mm -hmm. man? And and especially if they had an early adolescent experience, they'll be with a same sex uh, peer or something. They'll begin using every experience in their life as evidence to support their obsessive fear that they might be gay. And when they come to therapy, they're, they're saying, but I'm, I'm same sex attracted. Well, do you like sex with the same gender? No. Do you like and enjoy same-sex pornography? No. Okay, so there are good ways we can start to tease this out. But there are also one other thing I'll say real briefly is there are people who have same-sex erotic arousal and obsessive fear around their sexual identity. So they can have both. But if you have either of those, seek help. Reach out to people. And one benefit of the many of my uh, clients in the Muslim communities is that men support men very well in my understanding. A lot of these guys, when they have close ties in their local Muslim community, their male friends have been, in many cases, very supportive of their dealings with this issue. They don't reduce them to only being capable of being single. They encourage them in their pursuits of heterosexual relationships. And I just think that's a real strength of a lot of the Muslim communities that I've worked with. What has helped some of your clients the most from what they have shared with you in their um, journeys of either overcoming trauma and maybe linking that to their intimacy sexuality systems. What are some of the things that you've you've heard from clients themselves say like this is what really helped me in the long term or there was a powerful shift because of X, Y, and Z? Is there anything that stands out? Some common things that stand out are releasing shame and restructuring their sense of identity of self related to early experiences with same-sex peer enactment, early experiences of same-sex molestation from an older individual, or early experiences of detached shame from their dad or older brothers. So when they start to review these early trauma experiences in those variety of capacities and more, and they grieve, let's say, or also reduce their sense of shame about I'm bad, I'm inadequate, I'm unworthy, and take on new identities and beliefs such as I'm lovable, I'm okay as I am, related to these experiences, it has a powerful impact on how they relate to men in the present day and how they can kind of see the potential for healthy intimacy with men as opposed to linking it with eroticization of the of the men that they long to feel close with. Excellent. That's a beautiful response. Another thing came up for me. In a situation where, let's say, a person was um, molested or 
improperly had sexual uh, experiences with an elder sibling, typically male to male, right? Um, and let's say your client is the person who dealt with the abuse or, and let's say the, the sibling remains and will likely stay in complete denial that any of that ever happened. Is that an essential component to the client healing or is there, is it just a, a longer or more difficult journey to release that trauma even though this might be a person you're going to see at the next Eid or Ramadan, you know, he's your family, it's your brother, right? So, but it's just never, ever said or spoken about. And one person's doing the deeper work, the other person's living in the denial, right? How does, how do you like even begin helping somebody in a situation where that's the case? Because statistically that probably happens often. The right? first thing I do is help the client in internally resolve their response and their reaction to that experience because they first of all may not ever want to confront this person or two that person may not be available because you're right they might be there at the next feast or the next family gathering they may have passed away they may not be around anymore so we have to focus on healing as an internal process first because we can't be guaranteed reconciliation or even the ability to confront the abuser in order to move forward. So we got to start internally first. Then second, I, I would say it's so personal that I'm cautious to give any kind of recommendation. If it feels right to that person and they think they will have a greater peace and ability to move past this, if they were to confront the individual and if they were safe to do so, then I will support clients doing that. But I have found that many clients haven't needed to do that to find a lot of healing. But if they do think it's an important step, then I support them doing that. It's just got to be in their time and the client's own time. And it's got to be in a way that feels safe to them, knowing that the other person may not ever accept what they've done or take responsibility. So they have to go into that eyes wide open, knowing that it really has to be more about just sharing the truth of what happened regardless of if the person is able to receive it or not. So just by identifying, releasing the truth for myself, that can, that can be a mode that could lead me to a lot of relief, even if the other person on the other end is in denial or rejecting or not going to receive or validate. That's actually a power that a, a person has that for the internal healing. That's been my experience, but doing it on their own, not necessarily, not necessarily to the other person, even just in therapy or in the context of a close friend admitting this happened to me, this thing happened and it hurt me. And I, I have to pick up the pieces now with God and my friends and family. And if I choose then as this individual to confront my abuser, that's an additional step that may or may not be part of my healing process. But that's a risky step. And I would say I would recommend consulting with trusted friends or family members or an imam or somebody that is close with you and praying about it before making a step like that, because ultimately you are responsible for yourself and you cannot control if they're willing to own what they did or to apologize. And I think for you working with clients, you might've noticed this as well. The journey from victim to survivor is a powerful one that often involves forgiveness of the person, whether or not that person is sorry for what they did. And Yes, reconciliation, meaning the reconnecting of that 
person with you in your life can be healing, but it can also be too dangerous. That person might not be a safe individual. So that's why you really want to be discerning and, and even cautious before making a step like that, in my opinion. That's good advice. And do, why do you think, Michael, so much relief comes for the human being just by naming their trauma, like name it to claim it. Yeah. Um, when I was doing uh, trauma care, some trauma care training, they taught us that it's never about what's wrong with you. It's about what happened mm. to you. And it's interesting because I, I feel like half of our suffering is because we're in the dark about why I don't feel, you know, my fullest potential essentially. Right. So do you think there's a truth to that? Like by naming it, you claim it by naming it, you objectify it. You're actually releasing it. You're being that first step of self-awareness perhaps, and, and being confronting your own truth and reality. I mean, is that really one of the most powerful mechanisms and for humans to heal from a psychological perspective in your in my experience with clients, it's incredibly powerful. I can't compare it directly to other means of healing necessarily, but in a, even in my own life, just admitting when something bad has happened and, and saying it and admitting it, that is a powerful tool in my life that has led me towards a greater sense of compassion for myself, which helps me internalize compassion from other people and then also show that love to, towards individuals who are in similar experiences. And this facilitates what I think is a principle of living in the divine life, which is giving ourselves away. We are healed so that we may heal. It's not just for the sake of healing so that I can be on my own, doing my own thing. It really is about, in my opinion, when you name what happened to you, it's part of this process of being able to then turn around and help other people name it. So that's why I think it's powerful because it moves you to mission, to saying, wow, if I survived this thing, I'm called to help other people survive what they've been through. And that I think is part of why it is so healing is because it's not just about naming it. It's about the naming is a step in the process of moving through it and helping others as well, perhaps. It's just some thoughts on the matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I, I love that. And I like moving to mission as that phrase, because you either typically deal with evil in three ways. You repress it, take it out on people later in life, <laughs> right? You, um, or you become the evil as a, perhaps, perhaps a means or a mechanism for survival. Like I become the racist if I've experienced racism or I become the abuser if I've been abused because on some twisted level, it makes me feel like, well, that can't happen to me because I'm now the villain, right? Versus being the victim. And then the third, which I think is what the divine is suggesting is Evil happens to refine you, to learn, to grow, to understand the distinction between good and evil, right? And by healing through your own evil, you become now a healer or doctor of that evil. And if we don't go through evil, we're never going to learn how to solve it, right? Or heal it, right? That's why you go through the things that you go through. So I, I do think that there is this um, uh, greater kind of role in and my individual self getting through my own um, struggles or healing or recognizing the evil that's happened to me because now I am quote unquote an expert in that particular evil and I can be now a scholar or a guide um, or healer for others perhaps. Yeah. 
And I think that there is more to it, like you said. There's, there's a, even a, a sense of existential purpose linked to this process. And if you deny in yourself what happened to you and have a hard time – like we've talked about this because we're saying about naming what happened. If it's hard for you as an individual or me to name what happened to us, it's going to be hard to help other people because we're not going to – we're going to resist seeing them name it because that will force us to come to – to look at a part that we've avoided in ourselves or an experience we've avoided. So the naming is a powerful tool, like I mentioned, because until we do that, it might be a source of resistance and our ability to see other people's wounds and what they're going through. And I do, I will add one caveat. I don't think everyone has to go through a particular experience in order to be a channel of God's healing in others' lives that have gone through something they didn't experience personally. But at the same time, dealing with our own wounds gives us the grace to help deal with other people while they face their wounds, as opposed to if, like you said, if you're one of those other two, you know, you're perpetrating as the villain or you're in denial, then you're going to be and living with the complex. Yeah, then you're going to be less open to seeing and facilitating other people because it will remind you of something you're afraid of or have avoided in your own life. Right. And the other caveat is not everyone who goes through a particular evil needs to become a healer or on a mission sure. to get rid of that evil either, right? That's just a opportunity, right, or a calling. Um, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And uh, But they will, Kareem, in their own lives too, even if they're not going off and doing it as like a big, big capital M mission, just in the way, for instance, let's say they treat their own children they will be a facilitator for breaking intergenerational often traumas and, and patterns that move as a part of their mission, even if it's not focused solely on outside of the household or on a profession. So I think that there is potential in that regard. Oh, absolutely. Because it, it will stunt all your relationships, right? Like you you won't have full intimacy with, let's say, your family because of that unprocessed trauma. And um, you know, I feel like the, uh, this is why perhaps the first pillar of Islam is to bear with it's, you know, people often say, yeah, it's just to say there is no God, but God, Muhammad is messenger. But it's like, that's just, um, that is a, uh, a, um, a, one of the keys, but the first pillar is the Shahada and Shahada actually means to bear witness to the truth, no matter what it is. So you can't so you got to start with seeing reality as it actually is, right? The opposite of denial and distortion, being honest, being truthful, bearing witness to what is reality. Because if that is not your first premise for what you're going to do, it's not, uh, it's going to be suboptimal to say the least. Right? It's a beautiful way of phrasing it. And for many clients that I work with that are Muslim, it's important in that process of trying to bear witness to the truth or to see reality as it is, to then see things as progress, not perfection in their lives. Because for a lot of these men with same-sex erotic arousal and distress around that issue, that black and white thinking gets really difficult for them. Either they perfectly overcome it, even their traumas, either they perfectly overcome their trauma or they didn't heal at all. Or they don't, do, and, right. And exactly. I'm like, wait, hang on. Last time we talked about this trauma, it was 10 out of 10 for you. And now it's two out of 10. That's still growth. So God is working in their lives, in my opinion, both in terms of their trauma recovery, their obsession recovery, and their same-sex attraction recovery, often on a spectrum over time. 
And some of us will go to our grave with, you know, we all have wounds we'll take with us and as we go to meet God, hopefully, God willing. And so my point is that I want to encourage people not to feel like either they perfectly overcome all of their traumas and difficulties or there's no point in starting. I would encourage them to think of it as it's a necessary step to deal with these issues. And that that progress of dealing comes uh, sometimes in big spurts and sometimes gradually, but it's always worth the journey. The journey is worth it. Yeah, and by the way, what just you being conscious, sincere, putting in effort, there is always compounding positive results and effects over time, even Love if you that. can't directly identify it. And this is well established, whether it's with money, with you know a, a skill or a behavior, it's the time and repetition and conscientious engagement with the energy itself, which will actually have compounding effects over time. And so you're right, some people... And, you know, I've told people who have had addictions, like they've literally gotten angry at God because they haven't healed from their porn addiction soon enough. Like, I don't get it. I'm doing this for God. Why hasn't he removed this from my heart? And Mm. it's like, this is about your ego and your OCD and your perfectionist mentality still, because that's not how you talk if it's really about trusting that process with your soul and God. And the work is a gradual, you know, journey, right? Nothing happens overnight. And... Um, we're not uh, computers and cars. You just change a wire or this and fix it and it's fixed. You're an organic living being with a heavenly and earthly order. And so the way that that's going to progress or move or change uh, is not quite the same as like change a light bulb or, you know, fix this code in the program and then it's all said and done, like just like that, snap. So of course, the gradualism is a good reminder Good reminder that it's always about progress, not perfection. It's better to um, move slowly than to sit still. And honestly, compounding effect is something I've witnessed in my own life with others. Just consistent, good choices, consistency, and time equals compounding successful results. Yeah, oh, I love that. And I think it's good to remind clients who deal with this or individuals who deal with this issue of same-sex attraction that the journey is worth it also because intrinsically, if you're a person of faith, either Islamic faith or Christian faith, that the the laws of God are to guide human flourishing. So even if it feels like a sacrifice and that is difficult, we actually, I think as people of faith can get better at talking about this issue by saying, look, the world is telling you that you could go be gay and that's what will facilitate your happiness. But pleasure is fleeting in that regard. Ultimately, the desires and longings of the human heart are fulfilled through the laws of God. So if we can trust God more than we can trust our frustration, that can give a lot of uh, perseverance and perseverance leads to hope and hope will not disappoint, as we kind of say in in the Christian tradition. And so I really want to just encourage people to have hope that no matter the struggle, no matter how many times they fall down, like you said, it's not about the ego. It's about, okay, I'm still on this path because God is telling me this path will lead me towards the flourishing he wants for my life, that God wants Mm. me to have, to have life to the fullest. Right. It's almost like proper hope is a fuel for motivation um, on the path which you know God will be with you on, you know, because it's not separate. It's it's like a lot of things have to do with this. Uh, Perhaps, you know, one of the laws of God is to consistently find um, what is true, good, and beautiful, but to be in a 
constant process of integration or unification because a lot of problems, even with human psychology, society, with whatever, it's about separation, disconnect, and not having those working parts all together because from the grand scheme of things, it's all just one thing, right? With infinite pieces and processes, but it's all one existence generated and guided and restored by the divine reality. So plugging into that source is the inexhaustible resource for the human being. Hmm. It's, a, it's a great way to, to talk about it. And I think each faith tradition is going to address this in some unique ways. And obviously, we're in different faith backgrounds, which may or may not see it exactly the same way. But at the end of the day, what you're saying really resonates that you're plugging into God and that is the source of all creation in both of our religious backgrounds. And for our clients that deal with this issue, either they view this difficulty that they have as an impediment to connection with the divine, or you can start to look at it as a way of facilitating your connection with God. Because when we struggle, that is when God makes manifest his greatness and our need for him. That's what I think is what we call humility. And so we can use these sources of difficulty as a means of growing closer and plugging in more to that, what I think you're calling the divine reality, because that highlights, look, we all need something bigger than ourselves. And that's part of addiction recovery. A lot of people use that in the 12-step model. And so, you know, let me say first and foremost here that I too am a sinner in need of God's mercy. And on this podcast, I think it's good for me to acknowledge that we I don't sit here in the chair of on high authority, but more of one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. You know, look, this is the food we're finding. You don't have to buy the lie that your sexual proclivities define your entire personhood and that a religious identity and an identity grounded in the divine is a valid way of looking at life and we support you seeking support from others for this issue. Exactly. In other words, evil, darkness, mistakes, sins is part of the program, right? It's the, it's the point because there is no um, uh, process of realigning, reuniting, reconnecting, growing, thriving, and so forth if the opposite complementary forces don't exist. It's interesting. Right? And so it's kind of like a yin and yang and everything. Um, and um, uh, my brain sometimes runs faster than my head. Oh, and there's a prophetic saying, uh, that um, all of the children of Adam make mistakes or sin. But the best of the children of Adam are those who turn back to the divine, reorient to the values of the divine. That's the story, right? That's a saying of the Prophet Muhammad that, you know, that's the, everybody is going to make mistakes and commit sins. Your job is not to be sinless. You know, God already has those creatures. They're called angels. So <laughs> we're here for a different reason, for a different play. You know, And we want the Muslim men and women, perhaps, who deal with this issue in particular, to not lose sight that their struggle with this issue is not definitive and make them uniquely messed up. 
that other people, every human has their struggle. And that is one of the common themes that the Muslim men and I, I, I presume women struggle uh, with who have same-sex attraction. They start to see themselves as so distinctly and uniquely separated from the community because of this struggle, as opposed to one of their brothers and sisters around them who also have their own challenges and struggles. And that can become the grass is greener on the other side for our clients where they think everyone else has it perfect. Or it can be just that I'm alone in my distress or my discouragement. And neither of those things are true or based in reality, in my opinion. Exactly. And it's the opposite of a sense of belonging and unity and solidarity, which is what we need. And, right? and to, to wrap you know up my perspective on this, I just want to offer, too, that there is a great resource um, through – a, a well-known podcast uh, by Dr. Wahid Jensen. He informed me about a, an app on the Discord app. I don't know if we want to include this in our discussion Please. here, but yeah, um, I was gonna. I was about to ask you. Tell us some resources that people listening could access. So please go ahead. So, in terms of resources for for Muslim individuals in particular, there is a group called Straight Struggle, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek name. But there's about 430 or so men and possibly women on this Discord app group. And Discord is an app for gaming, online gaming, but they've used it to create channels with all kinds of podcasts and resources and mental health thoughts and everything you could think of for men who deal with same-sex attraction that are Muslim and their religious channels and all kinds of resources. And if you want information, your listeners, if anyone reaches out to you, I can send you uh, the invitation to that group. There's also resources through reintegrativetherapy.com, which is the organization I work for. Reintegrative therapy is specifically for men and women with same-sex attraction. It's not religious-based counseling, but we see clients of all religious backgrounds. So those are both great resources for individuals wanting support for this issue from a professional perspective or peers. Excellent. Thank you so much for those resources, Michael. It was an honor and a pleasure to have you on today, sir. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll hopefully keep in touch, God willing. And uh, thanks again for your valuable time. Yeah, for sure.